Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Greetings, friends. Before we get into this episode of Science Rules, we, or I, have an announcement. A programming note, as the big wigs at Stitcher like to say. You've probably been thinking plenty about the good old, or maybe it's the almost brand new, coronavirus outbreak. I mean, who hasn't been? So we here at Science Rules are going to keep you updated on the pandemic in a regular fashion. Starting next week, we'll publish extra episodes of Science Rules with experts in the field, presenting the latest fact-check science, and we'll break down the biggest news with top science reporters. And as always, we want to hear from you. For these special episodes, the technology of choice is voicemail. Good old voicemail. Call us and leave a message with a question or something about your experience as we live through this pandemic. Call 470-ASK-BILL. That's 470-275-2455. 470-275-2455. We'll share a few of your messages on the podcast. And meanwhile, please stay safe, stay calm, and listen in to stay informed. And now, on with the show. And so the world's changing. The world is, in many regards, literally on fire in a way it never used to be. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Greetings, greetings, greetings. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where, dare I say it, science rules. Now, it's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter to find out when to call. And as always, send us your questions and comments to where, Corey? Uh, I'm thinking askbillnye.com. That's exactly right, because I am joined once again by that very voice, Corey S. Powell, science writer, editor, and dear friend. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. So, you know, Bill, one thing I really appreciate about doing this show with you is that we get to focus on the big picture long after, you know, crisis of the day has faded from the news. The big picture. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, I'm thinking today about the uh, the Australian bushfires uh, that got so much media attention. You know, the flames have mostly been put out, but the problem of drought, and wildfire, and climate change, it isn't going away. Uh, no. 
It's only going to get bigger. It's yeah. going to get more trouble, more complicated, more to do. So to help us deal with these issues, we have as our guest today none other than Dr. Park Williams. He is a hydroclimatologist. You heard me. Hydroclimatologist, that's water and climate together, at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory up there in Columbia. Yes, university? Yes, that's right. And uh, welcome, Park. Welcome to Science Rules. Thanks very much. It's a really honored to be here. So tell us about them. What, what did start the Australian bushfires? People or lightning or uh, both? Both. A lot of, the, a lot of it was lightning. Um, the way that fires often get going in Australia is a big frontal system comes through. These are systems, weather systems that uh, come with rain lots of times, but they also come with lightning. And these fires get going, winds are going very rapidly, and the fires will generally get pushed uh, say north for a few days, so that so that you have a line of fire that might be fifty or a hundred miles long, and then suddenly the winds change and push the whole line of of fire forward. Wow! Creating massive mega fires, much larger than anything we see here in North America. Even larger than like the Montana Idaho fire of whenever that was, nineteen ten or something. That was. Uh, yes, so that, yeah, that, uh, that... California had huge fires two years ago. Yeah, California did in 1910, the big burn, I think they called it, yeah. and they had uh, millions of acres burned. It, I think that the figure in Australia is something like 50 million acres burned this it's year. It's just totally off the charts. That, yeah, yeah I, I was amazed because the, the 2018 California fires were so huge, and they were such a big deal in the, in the American media, and that, I looked it up, that was about 2 million acres that burned, Compared to 50 million that burned in Australia, it's a the, the magnitude of is just shocking. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. Yeah. So, so what happened in Australia? It got dry over yes. what the course of three years. Yeah, so the, uh, and especially this past this past year. So uh, Australia gets most of its precipitation. At least this part of Australia that was burning gets most of its precipitation during the winter time, kind of like the Western United States. And they had a record-breaking dry winter. And that, that was followed by a record-breaking hot summer, and those two things combined to create a very crispy landscape that was just waiting for a flame and some wind. And you also, you look at the history of drought, uh, is that correct? Of, of, so looking at past patterns to understand the future? Yes. So how, how, do you, how do you look at the history of drought? How do you study that? One of the things that I really enjoy is using tree rings to tell us about about the the past of the world, so we've only like, been like the, like like stuff you do when you're a kid and you count tree rings. You can exactly. see you know good years and bad years by Farther how thick apart, the rings are. More yeah. Less so literally like that. Yes, literally like that. So in in Western North America or in North America more broadly, we've only been keeping careful track of the climate ourselves for about a century. But trees have been living out outside for uh, many centuries, sometimes millennia. And all the while, the way that they're experiencing the outdoors is being stored within them. And one of the ways that that information is stored is through the sequence of tree rings. Trees will have a growing season every year, and each time they do that, they have a ring in their trunk. And during a year of really good growth, of course, the ring is going to be really thick. And a year of really bad growth, the ring is going to be really skinny. And in a lot of places, trees and tree growth is really limited by the availability of water. And so we can use the variations in the width of their annual rings to actually tell how uh, precipitation and more broadly drought have varied over time. Do you actually, do you have a library of tree rings at, at your lab? Is there like a drawer you pull out and like, oh, here you can see the history of drought in these rings? Yes. 
So <laughs> That's th- cool. when you say rings, there are cores, right? There's diameter of a pencil or something. That's I right. I did this in the Boy Scouts. That's, That's right. right. So usually I think we were, we'd be envisioning the whole cross-section of a trunk. But of course, in order to look at the cross-section of a trunk, we'd have to chop down a tree. And so we actually only get the opportunity to look at a cross-section of a full trunk. If a tree is already dead and sitting on the ground, then we could use a chainsaw and just take away a slab of it. But otherwise, to sample from living trees, we just have a tool called an increment bore, which is just a big metal tube with a corkscrew on the end. And we screw it into a tree and it fills up with wood and we pull it out. And like you said, it's just this little dowel or just a fraction of an inch in diameter. And uh, we then sand that thing off, put it under a microscope and measure the rings. All right. So is there a... uh a feedback. So we have, let's say we have a bushfire in Australia, enormous thing, 200 kilometers long, 100 miles long. Um, do those fires affect the atmosphere or does it all blow downwind and, I mean, affect the climate rather in the future? Or yes. does it all blow downwind and not affect the climate in the future? Well, every, everything affects climate everything. in some way. And these fires have some important uh, effects. So, they put huge amounts of smoke into the atmosphere. And the first thing that smoke does is change the way that sunlight gets to the Earth's surface. And it changes the way that the Earth is able to cool off by radiating energy back to outer space. So when you change the composition of the atmosphere, then the energy balance totally changes. And we can see in satellites that, that's, that the smoke from these fires that were now a couple months ago is still circulating around the Southern Hemisphere. Now, does it reflect light into space? Yes. Smoke uh, both reflects light into space, and we can see that when we look at a satellite image. We see these big gray plumes. The reason we can see them is because it's reflecting light, but uh, the black carbon, the dark molecules in uh, in the smoke is also absorbing the, quite a bit of light. The soot. And then it, it acts like a blanket, it sounds like, holding heat near the ground. Yes. And... Uh, and, it, and that then will locally totally change the way the atmosphere circulates. We know that back in the 1930s, the big dust bowl event that occurred mm-hmm. in the Great Plains, there is huge amounts of dust in the atmosphere, which kind of act the same way that smoke is mm-hmm. acting, where it blocks sunlight from getting in, but also changes the way the earth can cool off and, and really change the way that the atmosphere circulates. I have exciting news for the two of you. Oh, like, let me guess. Let me guess. Okay. You get two guesses. Is it, does it have to do with this being a call-in show? It does. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And could it be a caller? We do have a caller. We have, a, we have Ash on the line. So I got it right twice? You got it right twice. Wow. And, and this caller's name is Ash, which seems is somehow it? very yes, apt. Yes, it does. <laughs> so, Ash. Hi. Well, where are you calling from? Oh, I'm calling from Brooklyn. And is Ash your full name, or is it short for Ashley or something like that? It's Ashley, but I always go by Ash. I promise I didn't shorten it for the okay, fire. Okay, thing. just just checking. Okay, uh, what what is your question? <laughs> um, I was just uh, wondering if there was, you know, if you if there's a direct link between um, intensifying climate change and the intensifying um, fires that we're seeing everywhere, and if you have a sense of how much carbon has been released into the atmosphere because of them. Two good questions, uh, Park. Take it away. I would say that that for the most part, yes. Uh, so you said intensifying fires everywhere, and I, maybe I wouldn't go that far, but in the places where we've seen intensifying fires over the last 40 years or so, I'm thinking specifically about uh, Western North America and specifically about these uh, really unprecedented uh, fires in Australia that we saw 
uh, this past December and January, then the answer is yes. And the link is really clear that as you warm the atmosphere, then just like if you warm the temperature in your house, things dry out faster. And when things dry out faster, then when the other inevitable things happen, where there's a spark at the same time that there's a big wind event, then that dry stuff is going to burn faster than if the same things had occurred in a cooler world. And we see this in Western North America. We're very lucky to have really good data on fire activity and past climate activity. And when we do correlation analyses, which means when we compare, say, the amount of area that burns in a given year to what the climate was in a given year, we see that the strongest link between fire and climate is through the aridity of the atmosphere. And temperature is the main driver of the aridity of the atmosphere. You dry out the atmosphere. Aridity is the dryness, the like dryness. arid, yeah. aridity. And cool. so it's the combination mm-hmm. both of the thirst of the atmosphere, which is dictated by the temperature. The warmer the atmosphere, then the more water it can hold. And how much water is actually in the atmosphere. And so as you warm the atmosphere, then the difference between how much the atmosphere could possibly hold, its thirst, and the amount of water that's actually in the atmosphere, which came from the ocean, that it's difference slake. gets bigger. I made that up. Yeah. No, no, it's slake, no, slaking no, wait, the thirst. No, wait, Ash, you had a, there was a second part to your question, right? About, about, uh, about, the, about the carbon? Right. And Yeah, this... I just wanted to get a sense of how much has been released, you know, or how much of a spike we've seen in the last couple of years with these really big fires. So I don't have specific numbers in mind, but I remember that in uh, 2017 was a massive wildfire year in British Columbia. Alberta. Oh, British Columbia. And and I think Alberta. And the amount of carbon that was estimated to have been released in those fires was equivalent, I think, to the amount of carbon that vehicles in, in Canada emit in a given year. And so whether that sounds like a lot or a little to us, I'd say it's probably going to vary from person to person. It sounds to me like it's kind of a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of fossil fuels that we're burning in any given year. But I also know mm-hmm. that even though CO2 is increasing in the atmosphere, it also varies from year to year. And those variations from year to year, after we subtract away the human cause increase in CO2, those variations in year to year are really strongly dictated by the wildfires that are occurring across the mid-latitude, so especially uh, across Australia and uh, subtropical Africa. So what about, Mm. Ash, this is a great, you've gotten us started. Thank you. I mean, this is the the essence, the crux, the main thing. How much is climate change going to be affected by wildfires? How much are wildfires going to affect climate change? What's the interaction? And uh, you're saying it's strong and provable. It's strong and provable, at least in some areas. And so wildfire, it requires uh, a, like all of, I think, four switches to really be hit. The first switch is you need stuff to burn. And so you need vegetation to burn. Then the second one is, of course, you need to dry it out so you make it flammable. Third is that you need a spark to actually light That's it on fire. That's the fire triangle. That's the fire triangle. And then the and then the uh, the kind of the runt of the family, but uh, a very critical factor nonetheless is wind. You need a big wind event to to spread it. And so, but when fires are big enough, they create their own wind, right? Yes, they do, and that's pretty fascinating to see, actually. So, cool air squeezes the warm air up, and that and the cool air rushing in fans the flames, and it becomes more intense. Right. Crazy. It is crazy. Yeah, well, so you, and it's the scale of it that's so spooky, right? It's just enormous. Uh, areas of land. And I've been, so have you been in a forest fire? 
I've been near a forest fire. I'm lucky enough to have not actually been so, in one. So, Ash, are you still out there? I'm still out there, yes. Did you watch the Science Guy show? The just, one that was on when we were kids? Yes. I, I was a watcher. That one, yeah. I've seen that one. Yeah, so we did we did one on forests, and we were in Washington State near Leavenworth and Wenatchee, Washington, and we were in a forest fire. And man, wow. it is a spooky thing. And I know many, many people now in California have testimonials about, you know, in, in Paradise, California, the town just disappeared, went up in flames. But man, when it starts going from treetop to treetop, so-called crowning, without the ground really getting hot for a while, it is really—it's uh, just—it's like it's a—it's a, like it has a mind. It's like it's out to get you. It's right. like it's alive. Yeah. yeah. So, so Ash, what, what prompted you to to ask this question? Do, do you have a, a personal connection to to fire or to to this issue? Um, I just care a lot about climate, and I'm trying to you know figure out how to talk to people who don't see the connections because it's you know there's never just one thing that causes one thing to happen it's this complex system so how do you kind of explain this to people who don't who don't see a connection i am that's a that's a great motivation to try and understand this as as you've suggested uh this system the interaction between climate and fire is extremely complicated and as i was saying because fire requires all these different things that gives us a lot of opportunities to think that we understand fire without having the full picture. So if ignitions were to increase by, say, say we started smoking cigarettes again and suddenly we had more cigarettes going into the forest accidentally, we'd probably see an increase in fire even without an increase in temperatures. Or mm -hmm. if we were to allow forests to accumulate in certain areas the way that we have in the West by fighting fires for a century. Uh, Force, you mean fuel on the ground. Right. So right. I, I was going to ask about that because this is, this is one of the sort of contrarian arguments you hear all the time. It's like, oh, the forest fires are all about like bad forest management. We're just kind of leaving more and more stuff lying around to burn. Uh, how much of that effect is, is real? It's, it, well, it's so, certainly a valid idea. And I think that it's very applicable in, in many forested areas in the West where for a century, we just totally snuffed out fire and we were very good at it. Uh, we can see the scars left behind from old fires actually in tree ring records. And we see that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, fire just got eliminated from the Western United States forest landscape. And now suddenly we see this rush of fire coming back. And I think that part of what we're seeing is that forests are artificially dense in some areas because we have been allowing fires that would have otherwise thinned forests out to, to, uh, We've been allowing these forests to become artificially dense, and so the fires that we now see are probably artificially large and intense because of that. But so let me ask you this. Uh, Ash, uh, thank you. Thanks for getting us started. Yeah, thank you so much. Please stay tuned. Stick around for more Science Rules after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a big year. 
the Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Science Rules is back. Uh, We've got Elijah on the line here. I think uh, maybe we can uh, elevate the conversation even further. Elevate, get it, where he's going with there. Elijah, where are you calling from? Hi, I'm calling from the University of Kentucky. And that's in Kentucky? Yep. Is it in Louisville? No, it's in Lexington. Lexington. Oh, cool. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. Hit us. Go crazy. So I wanted to ask, what is like the threshold, you think, for when there's no turning back when it comes to climate change? Like, when is there going to be nothing that we can really do about it? What is, what is the point of no return, kind of? Uh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess it depends on... on what we think of as returning. Uh, I think that, so for example, if we were to stop burning fossil fuels today, then climate would continue changing for the next couple of centuries. And so from that perspective, from the perspective of our lifetimes or even our kids' lifetimes, the point of return has already passed. But of course, the more we, the more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, then the more climate changes. And so maybe we Maybe rather than thinking just from the timescale of, of our lives, we think about the timescale that Earth might care about. And so one thing that the Earth does without us is have ice ages every 50 to 100,000 years. And climate modeling studies show that if we, were to bur- if we were to stop burning fossil fuels now, then the ice age that we think is scheduled to come in about 50,000 years might have still have a chance of occurring. Whereas if we burn fossil fuels the way that we expect that we will over the next century, which is uh, continuing to ramp up our use of fossil fuels, but probably uh, do that with some care toward the middle of the century. Uh, if we do that, then we will have canceled out the next ice age. I, I think more to the point, uh, it, when you're thinking in terms of a human lifetime or maybe the next few human lifetimes, I feel like so, part of the question here is, what's the difference between uh, you know, cutting back now versus just kind of like going crazy and letting the fossil fuels loose. If it's going to, if climate change is going to keep going anyway, uh, what's the difference between making it, you know, a little bit of climate change and a lot of climate change? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. The, so we still have, even though I was just saying that, that even if we stop burning fossil fuels today, climate will uh, continue changing. Even if you take the roast out of the oven, it continues to cook for a while. It does. And but the difference between pulling it out now and letting it cook a little bit over the next couple of centuries versus leaving it in and uh, and having uh, unabated warming um, and accumulation of greenhouse gases, the difference in impacts that humans and ecosystems will experience is profound. And so you hear a lot about uh, one and a half degree and two degree thresholds. Those are thresholds where we compare the future temperature say, temperature at the end of this century to temperatures before we started burning all these fossil fuels. Which Celsius. And and sorry, Celsius. Celsius. No, so. don't be sorry. It's a science show. One <laughs> and a half right, Celsius, good. two Celsius. And so, it, and so we think 
we already know because we're experiencing climate change now and we're already seeing impacts such as an increase in extreme fire activity in some places. We already know that just a little bit of warming that we've already done, which is about one degree Celsius or nearly two degrees Fahrenheit globally, that just that little bit already has impacts. And we think, though, that if we were to stabilize at something like one and a half or two degrees Celsius, then those impacts might still be manageable for societies across much of the globe, not all of the globe. There are some low-lying islands, for example, that are going to be underwater in 100 years probably, no matter what. But if we allow climate change to go so that we, instead of stabilize at one and a half degrees Celsius, maybe we stabilize at three degrees Celsius or four or five degrees Celsius, then we're opening the door to explore mysteries that we have very, <laughs> very little idea about. We have the geological record that tells us the climate does these major swings. There are these, what they call positive feedbacks in the climate system, which are not actually all that positive. They mean <laughs> runaway positive feedbacks. feedback in the, in the hold the microphone near the speaker sense. <laughs> yeah. This is the thing that amazes me. People say, oh, well, climate changes all the time. Climate has always changed. Like, yeah, well, we might not want to live in some of those other climate regimes. You know, just because life can exist doesn't mean it's going to be a good life for us. So, Elijah, what are you studying at University of Kentucky? I'm studying business management. All right, cool. What business would you like to manage? That's tough. That's tough. I'm a freshman. That's tough. <laughs> uh, green energy is an interesting area. That's right, yes. Uh, uh, the wind and solar in Kentucky, for example, energy storage and transmission. Just jamming here. I'm jamming. Yeah, yeah. In, uh, thank you very much for your call because you've you've asked just a key question, Elijah. When, when is enough enough? When do we stop? So two things. When I, I've always, well, I've always, you know, I've always, for the last couple decades, I referred to a tree as a column of carbon. And intuitively, when I look at a very tall tree of any species, I think there's got to be a lot more carbon stored in that tree than in a shrub. So sounds like you do studies comparing the amount of carbon in the tree with the amount of carbon in ground cover. And the example that comes to mind is two examples, is the Australian bushfires of this winter, uh, northern hemisphere winter, southern hemisphere summer, and the uh, Amazon burning. So is there any chance that the Amazon will grow back to anything like the amount of carbon that was stored there before the latest big round of fires started? Boy, that is a really huge question. And so but that's there's a, a chance. Yes. I think, I think there's a chance. Uh, so the Amazon is of course, a very wet place and left to its own devices. Uh, we will have a very carbon rich rainforest grow very rapidly, uh, in a lot of areas if left alone. Uh, the thing that, so we have these, this big summer of, uh, wildfires in the Amazon or a big season of wildfires in the Amazon. Were they all wild year. or were they human set? They were almost all human set. Yeah. And so. But then they got wild. Right. And <laughs> so, and so here, I think the, in the Amazon, we have just huge uncertainty in, uh, which way we're going to go. But, uh, we saw a dry, hot year get taken advantage of by people who wanted to convert, uh, Amazon rainforest to agricultural land. And if that persists, if those areas stay agricultural land, which has way less carbon, then all of that carbon that burned remains in the atmosphere. So, you know, we, we have Andrew on the line who has a question that's, that's right in the little valley of where we are right now. Uh, Andrew, are you there? 
Uh, yes, I am. Andrew, and, and where is there? Where uh, are you calling from? Oh, yes. I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. Andrew, Andrew, hit us. Uh, after the fires, is there permanent damage to the environment or do things just regrow as before? That's a good question. So did, uh, you were talking about the, the forest regrows, but does it, is it the same as it was before? Does it come back like that or, or is there a permanent change? In some cases, uh, so, yeah, the answer to that question is really complicated and interesting. Um, fire is, of course, a natural component of most ecosystems across the continents, meaning that even if people weren't here, we'd be having fires and so what we see across the continents is a lot of vegetation that's actually specifically evolved for fire. And they're evolved for different types of fire, depending on the type of climate they have. And so in the northern Rocky Mountains, for example, where it's normally wet and normally too wet for fire, the trees that are, that are specifically evolved for that region are specifically evolved to handle the every once in a while, say the every 200-year catastrophic wow, fire. 200 years. Right. Two or maybe even 300 years. Lodgepole pine is a great example of a tree that is very well evolved for that specific type of climate where you only get a fire every once in a while. And when lightning strikes. When lightning strikes. And because fire is so rare, then when it does occur, there's been so much time since the last fire that you once again have a very dense forest. And when you get a fire going, then it'll burn the whole forest down and you start over again with seeds. And the way that the lodgepole pine has evolved is to have these uh, glued closed cones called serotonous cones. You can think about a tree cone with just a bunch of sap so the seeds actually can't get out. But then when the heat of a fire comes, that sap melts and the cone basically explodes and sends its seeds around the area. And this wow. is the way that actually without fire, lodgepole pine would probably not exist, or at least it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have evolved this trait. Whereas in the southwestern United States, fires are much more common and have been common for the millennia. And the way that trees have, have evolved there then is to not have branches too low to the ground. I'm thinking specifically about ponderosa pines. They grow tall really fast. They don't have branches close to the ground. And they survive fire by having thick bark and by not catching on fire, but instead having fires just burn across They're the just too thermally massive. It's like so, so, trying to light a log with a paper match. Science Rules will be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You're listening to Science Rules. The research that I'm doing is showing that we just have our, the pedal to the metal here with change. So if we look at a forest, natural forest ecosystem, we can tell just from the traits of the natu natural ecosystem what the forest has kind of been evolved to handle over the years. Now, when we look at humanity and what we're evolved to handle, then... Uh, sure, we evolved, we've evolved to handle some things really well, like we can digest milk pretty well. But if you look at climate and drought, 
things are changing so rapidly that infrastructure or agricultural systems that were designed to, say, support society in the mid-1900s may be totally out of date relative to the climate that we're in now. So is there anything good about this? You're all you're very matter of fact. You just ah, so the fire's getting worse. You, see, you, you have you have sort of a big picture perspective. We got some aridity going on. There's well, some aridity that's coming in, but it, is, it just sounds like the freaking world's on fire, and it's going to be horrible for us humans. It, it might be, and I might just be too close. That uh, kind of like if you survey a town that lives at the base of a of a uh, volcano yeah, or yeah. a volcano, then that's actually where you find the people that are least concerned or scared. <laughs> right. And it might be a survival strategy. I personally find this stuff just absolutely fascinating. And that makes the work that I do much better than if I uh, was gripped in, in fear the whole sure. time. What, what do you but, say to the people who live in areas that are susceptible to burn? I mean, should people just not be living there? I think that people should expect uh, large fires and people should... Uh, should be thinking about what they're going to do, and in the in the and coming what, decades, what house they're going to build. And so, when people are thinking about where to live, I think that uh, the days of the mid 1900s, where you could just live wherever without any fear of burning in a massive forest fire, those days are done. Hmm. And and so, where we live, uh, how we manage our yards. Uh, the type of materials we build the houses out of, things as simple as do we use double pla- double paned glass? These are all things that should be considered. What what does double paned glass have to do with it? Ah, uh, in uh, so a lot of these more urban fires we've been seeing, like the uh, fires in Paradise, California, or in Santa Rosa, California, in the last couple of years, we see that the fires really jump from house to house. And one of the ways they do that is one fi- one house gets going on fire and produces a massive amount of heat. And that heat can be so hot to actually break the windows of the house next oh, door. Oh, wow. And double-pane windows, one of the cheapest ways to reduce the rate at which the house next door can heat up. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, God. Double-pane windows. And it saves not energy. To, not to save energy, no, to keep <laughs> your house from exploding. Let me ask you a specific question. I've uh, It has fascinated me since I was a kid. Catabatic winds. This is something. Ah, uh, you were one of those kids who was just obsessed with catabatic winds. I'll it's tell so you sweet, why. Bill. I'll tell you why. What? What? Okay. What the hell is a catabatic wind? So first, I pump up my bike tire, and the base of the bike pump gets warm, not because of friction of the piston rubbing up and down inside the pump tube, but because we're taking the molecules that are vibrating and squeezing them into a smaller space. They vibrate in a smaller space. They you, we perceive that as warmth or heat. All right, so this wind goes downhill so fast that it compresses? Yes. That's freaking amazing. Yeah, it is. And fires make this worse, right? Um, Or maybe the other way around, that these winds make fires worse. Uh, Because they dry the ground out. Right. And so uh, the catabatic winds that we are most familiar with hearing about probably are the ones that occur in coastal California during the fall, these so-called Santa Ana winds or Diablo winds. And these are really rare wind events that generally occur in fall and winter. You get a big high-pressure system that churns air in a clockwise motion around uh, Western North America and causes the air that was out over the deserts to get pushed over the mountains on the coast of the uh, continent and down to sea level and then out off of the coast, say off of LA or off of San Francisco. And so not only 
or because that wind is coming from the continental interior where it's very dry, the air has very little moisture in it. And this is a critical part for the heating of the catabatic winds. Like you said, if we, as we pressurize air, it warms. And so as we force this wind from the continental interior, which has a high elevation down to sea level, then we are, of course, pressurizing it just because we're forcing the wind to uh, go underneath more and more atmosphere. We're squeezing the wow. bicycle pump. And so we're squeezing the bi bicycle pump and the air molecules are getting packed together. Now, when you do that, you warm the air. But the way to get the, war the air to warm especially rapidly is to dry it out. It was, was for the air to not have many water vapor molecules in it. And so if we have dry desert air and we're squeezing it down to sea level, that's the way that you really heat up air. And because the air is also very dry, then the air's thirst for moisture is extra high when it gets out over the over the coast. Wow. Okay, and Bill, I think we can jam on one more question. We, oh, we've, yes. got, we've got a lot of people who are eager to talk to you, Park. So uh, we, I believe we have Matt on the Matt, line. Matt, 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 where are you calling from? I'm calling from New York, but I'm Australian. Really? I, I, I couldn't tell. I don't hear an accent. No, no, I do. So, Matt, what's your question? I kid because I love. What's your question? <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Australian bushfires and the California bushfires, and I'm wondering if, if someone, it'd be useful if someone could just sort of explain the, the similarities or the differences there, because they get lumped in together a lot, and I'm sure that there is some overlap, but there's probably a lot of stuff that's unique to each, each of those uh, incidents. Yes, I think that these uh, there is overlap and uh, and differences for sure. Uh, one is just the just the type of land cover that these that these two have in California. A lot of these massive fires we've seen uh, are in forested areas, uh, densely forested areas. Whereas in uh, Australia, these bushfires have been occurring, as you know, across uh, grassland, shrubland, and then some forested areas. These Australian fires have been much larger. Uh, the reason for that is probably just that there's a lot more open space in Australia than in, than in California. There's a lot more back out there in the outback. <laughs> <laughs> right, there is. And, uh, and then I think that the, the connection to climate change uh, has been very hotly debated uh, in both cases. And That's not a pun, hotly debated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't meant as one, but it could be. Um, the uh, in California, it's it, it, that debate. Uh, well, in, in both cases, I'd say it's really complicated because people are such an important play an important role in the fire regimes of both places. Meaning that people are responsible for lighting many of the fires, and people are also responsible for trying to put out many of the fires. In California, actually, the vast majority of these fires are lit by people, whereas in Australia, the the uh, many more, much more of the fires were lit uh, by lightning. But you were saying before, you know, one of the common factors is all these things go on. Lightning goes on. People start fires. You know, there's all, all these things happen all the time. But if the conditions change, if it's drier, if it's hotter, the same the same level of instigation is going to produce a greater result. That's right. And so we look at California and we see that yes, there. Uh, will always be people accidentally lighting fires. People will always be trying to put out fires basically as hard as they can. There will always be random weather events. There will always be wet years and there will always be dry years. And yet we've seen this march up in annual burned areas in California. In California today, there are about 800% more area burned 800%. than there were in the early 1970s. These numbers with fire always shock me. For example, 
these big fires that we've seen in Australia and California in the, in the initial days of the fire spread, the big ramp up, were burning at a rate of about an acre or a football field per second. Ah, I thought, ah. I thought you were going to say per day. I know. <laughs> it's, it, like... it's just the orders of magnitude with, with fire numbers always totally shock me. And so the world's changing. The world is in many regards literally on fire in a way it never used to be. In many wow. regards, yes. Uh, Matt, that's that's a, a great question. I'm glad you draw uh, draw him out, Park, out about <laughs> comparing these two global fire events. So are we seeing a transition in the West, for example, from old growing, from long growing trees to short growing trees? Yes, yes. These places where we've seen huge ramp ups in fire uh, activity, we will see shorter uh, shorter lived trees or these uh, higher frequency of fires would uh, select for for trees that that have faster life cycles. Aspens instead of ponderosa pon- or Douglas firs. And, for example. And, and that's exactly what we see in, in the West, in the mountains. We see after big fires, the first thing to come back is aspen. And so in many areas, we'd expect more aspen. Whoa, that could be... Well, Bill, that could be the start of a fire. Bill, do, no, be very careful with end. that thing. <laughs> I realize it's the lightning round, but in this context, it's very disconcerting <laughs> hearing that. But, uh, okay, a lightning round, not causing fires, just eliciting information from Park. Dr. Rapidly. Williams. Yes. Dr. Williams, what is your favorite tree? Ponderosa pine. Is there a tree you dislike or even hate? <laughs> Not that I can think of. Uh, okay, that, that's good. That's what good. is the most flammable part of a tree? It's got to be the, the on, a, on a conifer tree like a ponderosa, the needles. The needles. Is there a flammable plant, particularly flammable plant? Eucalyptus. Eucal- aha, mm, aha. Yeah. What's the most fire-resistant part of a forest? Big old trees. Gravel. Yeah, stream prob- <laughs> beds. <laughs> probably a probably a very tall, thick trunk with uh, with not many uh, low lying branches. There you go. What's is there a big misconception about wildfire? Something people always get wrong. I think that anytime we try and make it too simple, we're almost definitely getting it wrong. If we say ah, that is all because of climate change, or ah, that's all because of mismanagement, or ah, that is all because of increases in the frequency of, say, um, power lines falling, then we are getting it wrong. It's it's complicated. It is complicated, and everything affects the effect of everything else. Whoa. All right, uh, let's just do this. Smokey the bear, is he good or bad for fire education? Is he good or bad for our forests? Smokey the bear is fine, uh, as he is, but the... Uh, the concept that all fire is bad is something that uh, was attributed to Smokey the Bear. The idea that forest fire is bad uh, is a bad idea, that forest fires have always been a natural part of forests. And when we started putting out fires as har- as hard as we could, we were making a mistake because we were just kicking the can down the road, uh, waiting for the inevitable fire or allowing the inevitable fire to be even worse because of extra vegetation that was allowed to accumulate in the meantime. So I know we're in the lightning round, Corey, but this is something, let me ask you this. I have been ideating, not only that, I've been thinking about uh, humans' role in the world. Is fire one more place where we are in charge? Once again, humans with our 
almost 8 billion people are now running the show. In some ways, yes, that uh, we now are changing the climate. We light many of the fires. We try and put out many of the fires. Uh, we use fire to change landscapes. Uh, we use fire to burn carbon when we burn coal and oil. Uh, but we are not always in charge. So uh, with these large fires that we have in Australia and Western United States and elsewhere, like tidal waves, when they get going, we might fly the helicopters around uh, theatrically uh, pretending to try and put them out, but we're not making a dent in these fires. It's always a big rainstorm that finally puts them out. And so I'll, I often get the question of, geez, isn't, we can't, we, can't we put the, a man on the moon? It's so surprising that we can't just put out these fires. But people need to remember these fires, when they really get going, they're the size of skyscrapers and they go for miles on an edge and you can't get anywhere near these things. Man, so what's wow. the most extreme weather event that you've been involved in? Fire, rain, tornado, wind? I was living in northern New Mexico in the summer of 2011 when uh, the giant Las Conchas fire got going. This is one of these fires that was burning a football field a second and uh, experiencing the drought that promoted that fire and then the wind events that uh, that really promoted the fire. I was living 30 miles away from the fire and having tree branches land in our yard wow. that had been lofted into the air by the giant fire column and the winds that were created by the fire carried through the atmosphere thousands of feet above the ground, then dropped. Are these like smoldering the branches? They were no longer smoldering, but they were ashy branches. I'm not talking branches that are uh, multiple pounds. I'm talking about branches that are probably the size of mid-size uh, size and weight of mid-sized birds. Wow. Right. So there, it was raining branches. wood, yeah. branches. Wow. Raining char. Uh, raining char. Man, oh man, our guest today has been Dr. Park Williams, an expert on fires. And hydroclimatology. Hydroclimatology, the interaction between the atmosphere, the ocean, water in the atmosphere, and fire. And water across the continents. Amazing. Fire. Very cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for our callers for taking the time to call in. As you may know, I'm Bill Nye. As you know, I hope, I'm Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the forest and fire part of our universe, science, science rules. Now, if you like science rules... Please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps us know who listens. helps us improve the show. It helps you tell other people about the show so that we can be even more successful. Thank you. So be sure to look for my socials, as the kids call them, the Instagram, the Gram, the Twitter, uh, and the Booking of Face. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, a voicemail. Do so at 201-472-0785. 201-472-0785. Oh, that's so quaint. It is. Voicemail. Voicemail. Yeah. But we will listen diligently. Science Rules is produced by Claire Rawlinson and the very same Corey S. Powell. Our engineer today once again has been Casey Halford, who also mixed this episode and composed our original theme music. Special thanks to Jordan Bell. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, science rules. Stitcher. 
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.